What a fitting phrase for us to sing glorify thy name in all the earth because that's what God is about doing, bringing glory to himself because he deserves that glory. If you are new to Faith Bible Church, I'm Pastor Steve. We're glad that you're here. And we are in a series this fall talking about the different attributes of God. Those traits, characteristics, descriptions that that make up who God is. Last week we talked about three different ways that God demonstrates his goodness. His mercy is his goodness shown to those who are afflicted, who are hurting. His grace is his goodness demonstrated to those who don't deserve it. And his patience is his goodness demonstrated to those who continue sinning. Today we move once again to yet another attribute of God, one about which we don't often think. We, we, if asked to list the different attributes of God, we may, this one may not come to mind. Because we're going to talk about the jealousy of God. Now, when, when we think about the word jealous, we think of synonyms like resentment, envy, rivalry, bitterness. But we're going to see this morning that when we use the term jealous in connection with God, it carries a very different meaning from what you and I think of when we hear the word jealous. Have you ever flown on a flight when the flight attendant leaves the curtain open between first class and coach? Especially on a long haul flight. Maybe you're, you're going to Europe or, or uh, India as I've done. Oh, it's, it's just painful to watch. I mean, you're back in third class. Some 350 pound guy has proceeded to put his seat in the back position and he's in your lap. And your knees are kind of trying to find a place to be. You're scrunched in and you look up to first class and each passenger has their own little cocoon. And if, if they desire to, they can put it completely back and just go to sleep. You're wondering why they don't serve pretzels and peanuts anymore. And you look up to first class and the flight attendant is delivering hot napkins. And then this huge rack of ribs that looks like it came from the Flintstones car- cartoon. And, and I'm thinking, well, I'm hungry. Jealousy. All oh, those people in first class get it all. Well, that's not the word 
and the meaning of the word when we we talk about jealousy as it relates to God. And we're going to see this morning as we look at this idea of God being a jealous God, that it carries the idea of God protecting the honor of someone. When we talk about God's jealousy, we are talking about God fervently protecting his own glory, his own honor. And we're going to see this morning that he is right to do that because he is the only one who deserves honor and glory. So to begin this morning, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the New Testament, to the book of 2 Corinthians. And the first thing that we want to look at is a New Testament picture of godly jealousy. A positive picture of godly jealousy. And we're going to see that to have a godly jealousy is to be fervently committed to protecting the honor and welfare of someone. We referred to 2 Corinthians last week that as Paul writes to the church in Corinth in this letter of 2 Corinthians, he's writing to a church who is being attacked by false apostles. Chapters 11, 12, and 13 make that very clear. We see that these false teachers have infiltrated the church and Paul is deeply concerned for the welfare of those believers. We see in chapter 11, verse 3, Paul comparing the church in Corinth to Eve in the Garden of Eden as she was swept away by deception of the serpent. Paul is concerned that the Corinthians will be swept away by the deception of these false teachers. So we read in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. There's only one gospel, one message of good news. It's the message that that Paul shares with us in his writing It's the message that that we see in the Gospels that God loves people. And he saw the plight of people in that each and every one of us have sinned against God and we cannot fix that. We cannot do enough good things to cancel out all of the things that we've thought and done that go contrary to God's character and his revealed will. And God saw our plight and sent the second person of the Trinity, 
Jesus to earth who was born of a virgin so that he could be 100% God, 100% man, and live a sinless life on this earth so that he could take the penalty meted out by a righteous God upon those who sinned against him. And he could take that penalty upon himself and satisfy the right anger of a holy God towards sinful people. And Jesus Christ bore that wrath for you and for me and died in our stead and then rose again from the dead proving his claim to be God. And the New Testament tells us that that payment for sin is indeed good news because it's available to each and every one of us as a free gift. Costly for Jesus, free to us. And we accept that free gift that's made available to us all through faith through believing that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross as payment for your sin and my sin and rose again from the dead, proving that he is God. And when we believe that, we are in a very real way transferring the dependence of our life from ourself, thinking I can be a good enough person to earn merit with God, and putting our dependence solely on the person of Jesus Christ. I can be in right relationship with God because of who Jesus is and what he did for me in dying for me. And when we put our dependence, our faith, our belief, our trust in the person of Jesus Christ, his payment for sin is credited to the account of our lives. And we no longer are viewed by God as men and women and boys and girls who have sinned against him, but as those who are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, as we sang about this morning. That's good news. That's the gospel that we find in our Bibles. And these false teachers have been attacking that. Oh, faith isn't enough. You have to do this and this and this. Paul is fervently committed to the welfare of this church. So much so that in verse 2, he compares himself to a dad who has a daughter for whom he has betrothed this daughter to a young man for marriage. And that father is going to protect that daughter until that groom comes for the daughter's hand. Here, Paul is comparing the church in Corinth to the daughter, and the groom is Jesus Christ, and Paul is saying, I am here to protect you. I'm I'm here to protect your welfare until the groom, Jesus, comes back for his church. Verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 11 says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. To have a godly jealousy, as Paul uses it here, is to be fervently committed to protecting the honor and welfare of someone. That's godly jealousy. 
If you would ask me, Pastor Steve, what's the best television program ever made? It's a very simple answer. It's Gunsmoke. That is the best television show ever made. It is. Hands down. It was made for 20 years. From 1955 to 1975. 635 episodes of Gunsmoke. You can still watch Gunsmoke today from 12 o'clock to 1 if you have cable once in a while. If I just kind of feeling like my day's just weighing a little heavy, I might just slip out. So you know I'm going to go home for lunch today and put something in the microwave and just watch a little bit of Gunsmoke. Used to be on Monday nights when I was a kid. It's the story of Dodge City, Kansas that has... A marshal named Matt Dillon. Matt Dillon is the protector of Dodge City. I watched an episode a couple of weeks ago when some scoundrels came into town on horseback. Gunfighters. And Matt Dillon goes out into the street and before they even get out of the saddle, he says to them, Why are you here? And they said, we're just passing through, Marshall. And Matt Dillon says, just keep on passing through. He is fervently committed to protecting the welfare, the honor of the citizens of Dodge City. The Apostle Paul is fervently committed to protecting the Corinthians. And that gives us a picture of a good use of the word jealous. A godly jealousy is a a fervent commitment to protecting the welfare, the honor of someone. Here the false apostles are attacking attacking the Corinthians. And Paul points them out, says they're, they're trying to pull you away from the simplicity of Jesus. They're trying to adulterate the good news of Jesus, the gospel. And with a godly jealousy, Paul is protecting them. Just like one of our roles as elders here at Faith Bible Church, according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, is to protect our church family here from false teaching, from those who would adulterate the gospel. The author of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That's a hefty weight on the shoulder of an elder. One day, our elders here will stand before God and give an account of how we have guarded over, protected Faith Bible Church. The Apostle Paul sees his role as a protector, guarding the honor of the Corinthians, the welfare of the Corinthians. Now, with that picture in mind of jealousy, we want to look at that picture 
as it connects to God himself. And to do that, I encourage you to turn with me in the Old Testament to the book of Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. In order to get a feel for what's happening in chapter 34, we want to go back to chapter 32 and remind ourselves of the context of what's happening. In chapter 32 of the book of Exodus, we find Moses on Mount Sinai. And God is telling Moses the law. It's being recorded on two tablets, two uh, pieces of stone with the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue on those pieces of stone. While Moses is with God, speaking with God, Israel became becomes impatient. Where's Moses? He's left us here. He's abandoned us. We, we're gonna have to come up with a new God. So they all take off their rings and their, their necklaces and, and, uh, convince Aaron of their need to form an idol so they have an object of worship since Moses has evidently abandoned them. As Moses is with God, God's aware of what's happening in the camp of Israel, and he tells Moses, this is a wicked people. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel, and God relents from his his statement to wipe out Israel and sends Moses back down to confront them. And as we come to Exodus 32, verse 15, we see Moses coming off the mount, carrying these tablets of stone. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. And as we see in verse 19, Moses comes down off the mountain, sees Israel worshiping the calf. And it says, that came about as soon as Moses came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses' anger burned. And he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Now as we come to chapter 34, God is going to call Moses to once again come to him. And the the law will once again be recorded on these tablets of stone. And this time God makes a commitment to Israel that he is going to enter into a covenant relationship with them. He is going to bind himself to them by who he is, by his own honor. He's going to be with them and care for them and protect them. Notice in chapter 32, verse 10, it says, Then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant. Before all your people I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord. For it's a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. Be sure to observe what I'm commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. That's what God's going to do for Israel. But he asked Israel 
Since he is entering in covenant with them, he's going to be their God, he's going to be their protector. In response, he asks Israel to be true to him. To only worship him. To not have any false gods. So we see in verse 14, For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. When God referred to his name as being jealous, he's saying that to be a jealous God is part of his very character. It's part of his nature. Remember, the name of God is the compilation of his attributes. So God is saying, in the, in my very essence, I am a jealous God, in that I protect my own honor and glory. You see, God tolerates no rivals. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Turn with me over to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, we find God reiterating the law to Israel as they prepare to enter the land of promise. And we see in Deuteronomy 4 verse 23 a reminder of this covenant that God has made with them. He says, so watch yourselves that you do do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God has entered into covenant with you, Israel. He's committed himself by himself to be your God, to be with you, to care for you, to protect you. You make sure that you honor him because he deserves first place in your life. And if you don't give him first place, if you start going after knock-off gods fake gods, cheap substitute gods, because you start feeling insecure, you will experience God's discipline as a consuming fire. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. You shall not worship them or serve them, referring to false gods. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Father on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. You see, what was true then is true today. When 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 parents start putting substitutes for God in their life and start worshiping instead of God's stuff or people, trying to look to things, or people for our satisfaction, for our peace, for our security. Who sees that the most? Our children, and they start following the same thing. And then they do it. And here we see a reminder in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5 
that God brings discipline into the lives of his people when his people start worshiping a knock-off God, a false God, a substitute for God, putting someone or something else in the number one position of their lives. About two months ago, I decided I needed a watch. Hunting season was coming up. And I have just become annoyed always having to dig down through several layers of clothes to get my cell phone to find out what time it is. And, and duck season's right around the corner. And, and when you are a duck hunter, you know that shooting time is very important. It's a half hour before sunrise. And that's when there's a lot of duck flight. And my buddies in the dock boat will say, what time is it? And I'll say, I'll look, and I'll take my waders apart and dig down through my waders, down through my duck coat, into my pants pocket, get my phone out. Three minutes till shooting time, I put my phone back. Two minutes later, what time is it? I dig down through my waders, down through my duck coat, down through my pocket, get my phone. One minute. I said, enough of this. I'm going to get a watch. And oh, I really enjoyed having a watch again. Now, I just bought a cheap watch because I'm a frugal guy. So I went down to Costco and I got one that even at Costco was half price. $39 watch. I said, hey, this is great. I like having it. In fact, I like having it so much, I think I'd like to have a nicer watch. This can be my everyday duck hunting watch. But I'd like to have a watch to wear on Sunday morning, one to the office. And so I have a buddy here at Faith Bible Church who's kind of a watch expert. And I call him up and I said, what kind of a watch should I get? He said, well, you need a mechanical watch. Don't go with these ones with a battery in it. You need a mechanical watch. I thought that sounds good to me. What brand should I go with? He told me a brand. I looked on the web and said, now listen, I don't want to spend very much money. He said, well... This company has made mechanical watches continuously since 1950. They didn't get sucked into the battery world of Seiko. They kept making mechanical watches. The gentle purr of the gears clicking. In fact, the watch that I want, actually you can see the gear inside. Oh, how cool is that? So I found the one that I wanted, but I didn't want to pay the price, so I kept looking on the internet, looking on the internet, and I found a watch shop in New York City that had it a hundred bucks off. Well, this is too good to be true, but I also saw on the internet that there's a lot of knockoffs out there. People making it looks like that watch, but it's not that watch. So I sent an email to the company that makes the watch, and I sent the link for the shop in New York. I said, what do you think? They emailed me back in an hour and said, that's the real deal. That's one of our authorized vendors. Go for it. What really was cool is I was able to use points off my Discover card, and I told my wife, let's wrap it up for Christmas. So we got Christmas knocked out, and it didn't cost me anything. But what's really cool, and I don't get to see it until Christmas, but what's really cool is it's the real deal. It's not a knockoff. It's not a cheap substitute. It's not a fake that's going to disappoint me even though I think it looks good on the outside. One of the things that we've been talking about in men's ministry is how easy it is for us as men to start going after a cheap substitute in the number one place in our lives. 
Because we start realizing that while we thought we were in control, we never have been. And we start trying to find our significance in all the wrong places, and so we realize we're really not significant at all. And, and so in, in our striving for, for, for control and our striving for significance, we reach out to something other than God to think that will give it to us. So maybe we start turning to a hobby, or maybe we start turning to our 401K, or we start turning to our spouse, or even our children, thinking we can find some sense of security there. And what we end up doing is putting something or someone in the number one position that only God can have. We settle for a knockoff. God says he's a jealous God. Meaning, he's all about protecting his own honor and glory. He tolerates no rivals. And just as he says in Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 5 that he is a consuming fire, we see in the New Testament as well, that if we are a legitimate son or daughter of the Almighty King, he too will bring discipline into our lives when we start putting someone or something in the number one position in our life. Hebrews chapter 12, starting the reading of verse 5, says, And you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons, for what son is there with whom his father does not discipline? When we start seeking after a substitute for God, thinking that we can find our happiness and our peace and our security in something or someone other than Him. It's just like us going after an idol. And God told Israel, I've entered a covenant with you. I ask of you that you keep me in the number one position in your life. Why? Because He's a jealous God. He is a God who is committed to seeking his own honor and glory. He tolerates no rivals. And the Bible shows us that that's good. That, that God actually is right in seeking his own glory, seeking his own honor, because he is the only one that deserves it. To see that, I want us to turn over to two passages in the New Testament. The first is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we find the Apostle Paul telling the Corinthians in verses 6 through 13, don't allow pride to control you. And we're going to see that jealousy for our own honor for our own welfare is wrong because God alone deserves honor and glory. So here, Paul is saying, guard against selfish pride. Look at verse 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? 
what basis do we have to be proud because everything that we are and everything that we have has come to us from the hand of God? There's only one who deserves honor and glory, and that's God himself. A passage that brings that out so clearly is in the end of our Bibles in the book of Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation chapter 4, we see a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. When one day, we will be bowed down before God. And in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, we see 24 elders who I think stand as a picture of the church bow down before God. And in verses 9 through 11, we see that a proper response to actually seeing God is bowing down in worship before Him. And so in verse 10, we see the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. Those, those rewards that we will receive for how we have served the Lord while we're here on this earth Those rewards, when we see our God, we will kneel down, bow down before him and cast them at his feet because it will be all about him. And it tells us that the words on our lips will be worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. There's only one who deserves honor and glory, and that's God himself. What happens with us is is we get into patterns where we think we deserve glory. We start thinking we deserve honor. Even though the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3 verse 3 says that the moment we put our faith in Jesus, positionally in Christ, we die. Colossians chapter 3 verse 3 says, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. In Christ, the person I was before I put my faith in Jesus is dead. Positionally, that is true. But practically, as I live out my Christian life, the I, the me, keeps wanting to lift its ugly head. Well, I deserve honor. You haven't treated me fairly. I demand respect and I'm not getting it. And we, in a sense, put ourselves in God's position. Because there's only one who deserves respect. There's only one who deserves honor. There's only one who deserves glory, and that's God himself. If you lived in Cedar Rapids very long, you probably are familiar with a quote-unquote restaurant that used to be in our town, I use the word loosely, restaurant, called Chuck E. Cheese. And if you had children... While Chuck E. Cheese was in our town, you probably went there. I would use the term 
drug there. Because that's the only time I would ever want to go. The quality of the food was not quite there. But children love going to Chuck E. Cheese. Now, I never did any games there, but I have to admit that there was one thing that intrigued me at Chuck E. Cheese. And that was Whack the Gopher. They had this game that... It was electronic and they had this kind of this board and there's holes and gophers would stick their head out and you got to hold a mallet. And when the gopher would stick his head out, you could whap the gopher on the head. It looked quite fun. And I think the reason why I had such an affinity for whack the gopher is because I actually used to play whack the gopher in real life at home. We, we lived out in the country. And uh, my folks had an acreage, and then there was a, an old country church that was connected to our property, and that had an acreage. And I had to mow our lawn and the church's lawn. It took me six hours with a push mower to do the church, and about four and a half hours to do ours. So I spent a lot of time behind a Toro when I was a kid. And sometimes if my dad was available, he would come out and mow with me. And we had a little tradition. About 8 o'clock in the evening on a nice summer night in Iowa, we'd finish mowing, we'd go wash out the moors, put the moors away, we'd each get a glass of iced tea and sit out on a porch on the side of our house overlooking a big grassy part of our lawn where we had pocket gophers. And just for entertainment, my dad would always go get our baseball bat. And we would sit there and sip iced tea and hope we'd start seeing some dirt movement at one of the pocket gopher holes. And if we did, we took turns taking the baseball bat, going down to the pocket gopher and nail it in the head. It was quite fun. Every time it would raise its head, whap! And as we are still in these fleshly bodies, under the empowerment of the Spirit of God, trying to live out the Christian life, we still sin. And we still lift up the ugly head of me. I. And what we need to do is take a mallet and whop ourselves on the head. And remind ourselves positionally in Christ, the me is dead. It's Christ in me. That, that all that someone should see is Jesus in me and, that, and I'm not the one that deserves honor or, 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 or worthy of glory. There's only one in that position. And that's God himself. And God is jealous in that he seeks to protect his own honor and glory. And he does not tolerate rivals. Because he's a jealous God. And if when we start feeling a lack of control or we start feeling hurt in our lives, if we run to anyone or anything other than God himself and put something or someone in God's place instead of him, we are doing what Israel did. We're going after a cheap knockoff God 
instead of the one true God. And God is a jealous God, a consuming fire promises to us that he'll get our attention. He'll discipline us just as an earthly dad or mom would do and bring us back to a point where we can see there's only one God who deserves our honor and glory. He's a jealous God. Jealous in that he seeks to protect his own honor and glory.